become somewhat of a tradition uh, to take our fall Sunday nights and walk through a Bible life here at Great Oaks. We've done this for several years now. Uh, we've talked about Elisha. We've gone through Elisha's life. We've gone through Moses' life. We've gone through Samuel's life. Last year, we went through the life of Joseph. And I just started doing this. I didn't really mean to make it an every year thing, but um, I think Elisha was the first one we might have done. And it was a study that I sure enjoyed going through. And my impression was that people felt like it was an encouraging study. And so something we've done every year since then. And I, I like it for a lot of reasons. Um, some of the things we do this, some of the convictions that are behind series like this, are things like this. The, the Bible's full of story. It's not just story. There are laws. There are things God wants us to do. But God has given us so much that's just stuff that's happened in people's lives. And we learn from their successes and their failures. And we learn from the things they did right and wrong and, and how they messed up and what they couldn't figure out and how God worked in their life. There's so much God has told us about these lives that have come before us. It's also with the conviction that there's not just a children's section in the Bible. Uh, I guess I may have started doing this because I heard somebody say years ago, at least the seed was planted years and years ago, that somebody said, you know, we talk about Bible lives when we're kids growing up in Bible class. Maybe we don't talk about them enough once we get older. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it did get me thinking. Got me thinking, well, God didn't just tell us about these Bible lives to talk about and at two years old and three years old and four years old. God has put, it, put them in there for us to hear them our whole lives. God wants us to know about these people. And so those are some of the convictions behind what we do when we walk through these Bible lives. It also gives us a chance just to do some Bible reading together. Uh, a lot of these lessons end up being sections of Scripture where we just get to read parts together and see what happened and, and see what we can learn from it. Tonight's will be a little different, and I'll explain that. But what I'd like us to do then, starting tonight, for the next, I don't know, eight weeks or so, is to go through the life of Paul. I thought about different ones this year and who to talk about, what life to go through, but with the theme of the year being transformation here at Great Oaks, I felt like Paul was the one that just made the most sense. That if we're ever going to talk about Paul, we've been studying 1 Corinthians back in the spring, we're talking about 2 Corinthians on Sunday morning, transformation is sure something Paul embodies. I felt like Paul was the one to do. And I will tell you this to start with, um, I'm scared about it to this, to this extent, um, there's no way we can do justice to the life of Paul. There's just no way. I heard a preacher, he told me recently, he said, sometimes as preachers we avoid certain passages because we, we're worried we can't do justice to them. And that's probably true. Um, there are some passages that are just so good, you say, I can't. I can't do justice to that. People are going to walk out and say, good grief, that passage is a lot better than he made it sound. But anyway, and that's probably what's going to happen with Paul. But, but I want us to do our best with it because he is somebody that challenges us in so many ways. Uh, the passion of Paul's life, somebody who was just, and I've called it there, to live as Christ. And you may recognize that echo from Philippians 1.21, where Paul wrote, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And if anybody, if anybody encapsulates that type of mentality, it's Paul. Somebody who, who gave his entire life. He, it seemed like he didn't care what people thought about him, didn't care what the consequences were, didn't care what else was going on. Paul was going to do what Christ wanted him to do. And that type of spirit, that type of tenacity in his faith, challenges us, makes us want to be better, makes me want to be better. A book I'm going to be using as a resource as we go through this is Charles Swindoll's book on Paul. Let's see if I can get it to come up here. Maybe I'll try from this side. 
How about that? All right, guys, if y'all can advance it for me then. Please go to the next slide. Uh, this is Paul, the, the book we have it in our library or had it in our library. I've got it in my office for the next few months. But I'll be reading through it as we go through it. If you want to read through it after we're done or get it on your own, um, I'm sure some things that are going to come out are going to come out of that book So I'm reading through it as a, as a study resource. I'll try to quote where I consciously quote him. Um, we will, in fact, we'll do tonight differently than he does. But a lot of thoughts, I'm sure, will come from him. So let's talk about, let's talk about Paul for a minute. I saw a list several years ago. And it was a list of the 50 most influential people of all time, like in the world. <laughs> and guess who was on it? Paul. The Paul, I think they said Saul of Tarsus, maybe, you know, trying to be as sort of generic as they could be. We would call him the Apostle Paul. Um, of course, Jesus was on there. Several religious leaders were on there. Religion is such a big influence in the world. A lot of religious people were on there. But there was Paul. And I just stopped and thought about that for a second. That there, was, there were no others that I remember that were of a Christian background. There was Jesus. And there's Paul. Paul's the one who took that message of Christianity that Jesus taught and set the entire Roman world on fire with it. As some people would say in Acts 17, turn the world upside down by bringing the message of Jesus Christ. Uh, he was the spark that God used to really, along with the other apostles, to really spread that message everywhere. And I thought that was interesting because not only is, is he himself responsible for transforming so much of the world with the help of God, but he was transformed himself. He is an amazing example of one of God's greatest transformation stories. You might picture walking through a museum of some of the great artists who have ever lived, and you, and you walk through, and we'll pretend that, that there's, there's not one of these, but let's say there was a Michelangelo museum, and you're walking through, and you're looking at all his different stuff, and his statues and paintings or whatever Michelangelo did. Y'all know better than I do. Um, but, and, so, and someone, let's say a guide's walking us through, and they, we see all, well, a lot of stuff. And he says... But here are some of the ones that people look at and say, here's one of his finest works. Here's one of his best ones. I feel like we see that a little bit with Paul. That as we, we walk through an imaginary museum, and all of us hopefully are in that museum as Christians. All of us, God's life, God has turned around our life, and he's hopefully put strength in us and changed us and put us on an entirely different path. But I think we look at Paul and we say, that's, that's one of God's special turnarounds that he's really made in someone's life. And tonight, hopefully, we'll make that clear as we see where he came from. Because he just appears in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. Stephen has been preaching in Acts chapter 7. And he's preaching to the Jewish council. Paul was not on the Jewish council. He's known as Saul then. But he was not on the Jewish council, but he was probably listening in. He, he was going to be on the Jewish council one day if his life kept going in the direction it was. And so they get so mad at Stephen, get so mad at him, that they just decide, forget the legal process, forget asking the Romans to, to see if we can kill him or not. Remember, they had to do that with Jesus. Pilate, can we kill him? We're not allowed to kill people on our own. Forget all that. We're so mad, we're just going to stone Stephen right here. And it says, as they did that, they laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Seems like... Saul, or Paul, like a lot of people in those days, had, had a Jewish name and a Greek name. It doesn't seem, he didn't change his name just because he became a Christian. He's still called Saul several times after he becomes a Christian. So it wasn't like a Christian name change. Uh, but he's called Paul at some point in the book of Acts for the rest of the New Testament. Seems like that was just a Jewish name, Saul, and a, and a Greek name, Paul. But he's a guy who's, who's part of this. He's part of this killing of Stephen. Well, how did he get there? 
How did he become the guy who's holding everybody's robes as they officially stoned Stephen? Uh, how did he become that person? So what I want to do tonight, instead of walking through a bigger section of Scripture, I'm going to take advantage of the PowerPoint. I've got verses on the screen. We're just going to pull together several different places where we get these, these background glimpses into what Paul used to be, or Saul used to be, before he got to Acts chapter 7. And then we'll pick it up a little bit there and hopefully pull some lessons out of it tonight. So we're looking at where he started on this transformation journey is the big point of tonight's lesson. We're going to start in Acts 22. This is when uh, Paul is arrested and uh, the Jews are mad at him and he's going to spend the rest of the book of Acts in custody. And we're here in chapter 22, so all the way through chapter 28 he's in custody. The commander comes to him and says, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship, this Roman citizenship, with a large sum of money. And Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. So let's start right there. You might be keeping the list on the outline. Go ahead and put down there, Paul was born a Roman citizen. And that's where he found that out there in Acts chapter 22. I understand there were three ways you could become a Roman citizen. Now you could live in the country of Rome. Rome owned a lot of different countries. They were in charge of a lot of different countries. But to be a real Roman citizen, you had some special rights not everybody had. You had to either do something really special for Rome, maybe fight in the army, win a battle, get some great military award, and they might make you a Roman citizen. Or you had to, as that commander said, pay a whole lot of money. You had to have enough money to buy citizenship. Or you could be born a Roman citizen. And as Paul said there, he was born a Roman citizen. We don't know how his family became Roman citizens. Did he have parents that served in the army? Did he have parents or grandparents or great-grandparents that were just really wealthy and bought their way into Roman citizenship? We don't know. We don't know. What we do know is he is born a Roman citizen. And what that gave him was special privileges that not all the Jews had. In fact, it was pretty rare for the Jewish people to have Roman citizenship, which is why a lot of times Paul would get arrested in the book of Acts and they would just start beating him because he didn't have the rights of a Roman citizen. You can't beat him without a trial and you can't jail him without a trial. you got to do things very cautiously if you're handling a Roman citizen in the legal system. And so a couple times Paul speaks up and says, are you allowed to do this to a Roman citizen? Now, if you claim to be a Roman citizen and you weren't, you could be killed for that. So when he said, can you do this to a Roman citizen, people would stop right there and say, are you a Roman citizen? Because we need to know that before we go any further. Uh, But Paul was unique in that aspect. He was born a Roman citizen. What else do we learn about him? Acts chapter 21, verses 37 through 39. Again, Paul is about to be brought into the barracks. You'll notice a common theme of Paul's life. He ends up getting arrested a lot and part of riots a lot. Hopefully we'll explain all that as we go through it. He says to the commander... May I say something to you? And he must have said it in Greek. The commander says, do you know Greek? The commander says, so if you know Greek, then you're not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. There had been this big riot in Jerusalem, and so the commander comes in to try to calm it all down. And he must have thought that that's who this was. He thought, oh, they found that Egyptian who's been, been causing all these problems. Well, when Paul starts speaking Greek, he says, okay, so you're not... You're not him. Paul says, I'm a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. And I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. Now he lets him. We'll see that in just a second. But we're making our list. Who was Paul before all this gets started, before this big life transformation? And he found out here he's a Jew. 
He's a Roman citizen, but he's a Jew, and he was born in Tarsus. And as he called it there, no insignificant city. I understand Tarsus is one of those big points through which a lot of trade came. They, they had wealth in the city of Tarsus. They had this big mountain range outside the city of Tarsus. Would have been a beautiful view to look out your back porch if you grew up in Tarsus. A city that had all the Roman culture that you would expect from a major Roman city. And that's where Paul grew up probably till about age 12. We don't know that completely. The reason we think he didn't grow up there for the rest of the time past age 12 is because of what he says here in Acts 22. When the commander lets him speak, remember he just asked the commander, can I speak to the Jewish crowd that's wanting to, to, to kill me right now? He lets him speak, and so everybody gets quiet. He's, and Paul says, brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. So Paul is one of those people that could speak multiple languages. wasn't too uncommon back then. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. So that's another piece to our puzzle of where did Saul come from. He was born in Tarsus, must have been there for some time, but was educated in Jerusalem, again, the center of Jewish culture, under Gamaliel. Now, not everybody got to go to Jerusalem to study under somebody like Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the best-known rabbis of the time. He was on that Jewish council that Stephen had spoken to and that the apostles had spoken to several times. In fact, at one point, Gamaliel speaks up in Acts chapter 5, and Gamaliel brings the whole council to say, guys, we need to do it this way and not the other way. I'll mention that in just a second. But Paul got the opportunity. Somebody must have seen something in him. He must have had some intellectual ability or some love for Scripture. Young Jewish boys were taught Scripture very, very strictly. They would memorize long portions of Scripture. And so it became pretty obvious which ones enjoyed doing that and which ones didn't. Maybe he just did a great job of, of learning. And somebody said, you need to go to Jerusalem. Maybe his parents had the money to send him. Maybe that was part of it. We don't know. But at some point... He goes to Jerusalem. For that matter, I mentioned his parents. Don't know anything about his parents. Um, did they, had they already died before this happened? Maybe. Um, did they go live with him in Jerusalem as he's studying under Gamaliel? We don't know how that worked. Uh, I have no idea. Is it more like a boarding school when he went? We don't know. We don't know. But at some point, and most people think Jewish boys did this about age 13. At some point, he moved to Jerusalem to have the, the elite Jewish education, studying the Old Testament law under Gamaliel. Another thing he says later in Acts 26, uh, as he was going up in Jerusalem, notice this. He says, So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. Notice that. He was well known among the Jews. As he's growing up there in Jerusalem, people knew who Saul of Tarsus was. Uh, maybe he was one of those rising students who people could tell he's going to be one of the great rabbis one day. He's probably going to be on the council one day. He's following in the footsteps of Gamaliel. They knew who he was. When he begins... Uh, preaching Christianity, 
everybody knew who he was already. And they couldn't believe he was preaching Christianity because that's not where he started. But he was very well known among the Jews. Part of that, as he says in Galatians 1.14, he was advancing in Judaism, he says, beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. So he's doing great in school, and he is zealous for it. He loves God's law. He believes in it. He is going to pour his life into it. And so he was advancing in Judaism. They knew who he was. You also notice in that passage read just a second ago, I've underlined a different part here. He was living as a Pharisee, according to the strictest sect of our religion. So he was a zealous Pharisee. I wish I knew if he had much contact with Jesus or if he had contact with people who had talked to Jesus. Because as you know, in Jesus' lifetime, he has all these confrontations with the Pharisees. They're popping up in the grain fields to, to tell him he's doing wrong. They're arguing with him in Jerusalem every time he comes into Jerusalem. Maybe, maybe Saul was still studying then. Maybe he's hearing Gamaliel and others talk about Jesus. Maybe he heard Jesus himself. Maybe he heard some of the debates back and forth. I wish I knew more about that. Maybe we can ask God when we get to heaven. Tell us more about the, the background there. But he was a Pharisee. And, he, and if, remember, Pharisees, they believed very strongly in the law. Um, sometimes they got too caught up in, in focusing too much on the small things and forgetting the big things. But, but what Jesus did appreciate about them is that they, they cared about the law. Um, they sometimes got it twisted around more than they should have. And then in Philippians 3, this is our last, part on, uh, last verse on this part. Paul says, I was circumcised the eighth day, like every faithful uh, family would have done for their, uh, their young man born into Judaism, of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he wasn't just a Jewish person who lived according to Greek customs, like a lot of people did. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Like, I lived as a Jewish man. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. We'll get to the persecutor part for the rest of our time in just a second. But the last thing I think we notice in that, he was extremely sincere. And he was obedient to Judaism. He said there in that passage, let me back up again. At the end there, you see it, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. Like as much as you could keep the law, going to Jerusalem for the feast, doing all the things to make sure you're clean and not, not part of uncleanness, he was following the law as best you could follow the law. Uh, he was sincere and obedient to it. And nowhere did that zeal come out more than in the Christian problem that Jews had in the early chapters of Acts. Because as Christianity is growing in Jerusalem, what you find as you read those early chapters of Acts, the Jewish leaders are getting more and more frustrated that they can't stop this Christianity. They seem to have thought, if we just kill Jesus, that'll get rid of it. Well, then Jesus rises again, and He appears to people, and then you can't shut it up because they believe it. Like, they have seen the risen Jesus Christ, and you cannot tell them to be quiet. And so we assume maybe, maybe Saul is standing on the sidelines when the apostles come before the Jewish council in Acts 4, and Peter and John are standing there, and they say, Look, there's salvation in nobody else. There is only one other name under heaven by which men can be saved, and that's Jesus Christ. And it says they all observed their confidence and realized that they had been with Jesus. Maybe Saul was one of those who was observing their confidence. And we look at Peter's speech and say, look at the boldness. Isn't that great to stand up before that council 
and say Jesus is the only way of salvation. If Saul was there standing on the side, Saul did not feel that way. It made him angry. It made him think, how dare these blasphemers stand here in front of us and, and say that a man is God and say that, that we all need to obey him. It made him angry and it started welling up inside of him. He was probably there in Acts chapter 5 when again Peter and the apostles are there and Peter says, the high priest is questioning them and said, hey, we told you not to talk about him. And he says in verse 29, um, see if I can back up to it. At the bottom there, we must obey God rather than men. And we say, look at that boldness. Isn't that great for Peter to stand there and say, I'm going to obey God rather than men? Saul did not think that way. If Saul was there, he thought, how dare they? How dare they act like they're obeying God and we're not? And so this anger builds up. And there in Acts chapter 5 is when Gamaliel speaks. They have the apostles go out of the room for a minute. Sounds like they wanted to have him killed. At least some people did. Saul may have been one of those some people. But Gamaliel speaks up, Saul's teacher, and he says, guys, you need to be careful. Because here's what happens. If these guys are just from men, they're going to be scattered. It's not going to come to anything. No one's going to care. But if they're speaking with God, you might be found fighting against God. He says, I, I say we don't, we don't do anything rash. We just warn them, let them go. And Gamaliel had so much influence in that group that they listened to him. But we wonder if Saul was one of the ones who said, who thought to himself, that's not enough. Because what they do in verse 40, they, they take his advice, they take Gamaliel's advice, and they just beat him, they flog him, and send him off. Um, Saul and some others must have thought, that's not enough. That's not going to stop it. Because that's when Stephen happens, just a couple chapters later. Stephen comes back in front of that same council, and Gamaliel nor anybody else could stop him this time. They take Stephen out, they stone him to death, and there is Saul holding the robes. After this, Saul doesn't just hold the robes. And we'll get to some blanks for the outline here in just a second if you're looking for that. After this, Saul doesn't just hold the robes. Saul leads the charge. Like he decides, this is how we stop Christianity. We take these Christians and we get them killed because they're blaspheming. Like this is what the law says. You blaspheme God, you call a man God, that's blasphemy. You should be stoned to death. I've studied the law since, since 13, 12 and below. I know what the law says, and this is blasphemy. That's how he thought. And so he takes the lead in chapter 8, verse 1. It says he was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. He wasn't on the side thinking, you know, should we really be killing this guy? He was in full agreement. He needs to be killed for what he just said in that council about Jesus Christ. And so it says, On that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the persecution begins. It says, Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. It becomes his life mission, at least for now. <laughs> we're going to stop these Christians. Like That's who he is. He is so invested in Judaism that we will not let Christianity change what we believe. 
So let me give some descriptions then. And one of them's in the passage that was just there. And I've underlined them for you to write in the outline if you want to write it down. It says there in verse 3, he's dragging off men and women. What an image. Dragging off men and women. He wasn't walking in with a, a, an arrest warrant and saying, if you don't mind, please come with me. We're going to walk down. He, he's dragging off men, and not just men, but women too. Like, he thinks it's wrong. What they're doing is wrong. I don't even know how he decided. Like, did he, did he ask people who was a Christian and who wasn't? Did he ask people, are you a Christian? And if they admitted it, he'd drag them off? Did he just, it says he went house to house. Did he knock on the door and say, are there any Christians here? And if anybody admitted it, he'd say, all right, grab them. I don't know how he got the conversation going or how he picked who he picked, but he's dragging people off. If you're a Christian, we are getting rid of you here in Jerusalem. And you can understand why Christians just left. Like, let's get out of Jerusalem. We're going to die. Saul is killing us here in Jerusalem. We need to get out of here. You also find a little bit later in chapter 9, look at this description in verse 1. Breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He is breathing threats and murder. Again, what an image. Um, just like we breathe carbon dioxide out, right? You take in oxygen, and out comes carbon dioxide. I think I remember that right. He's breathing threats and murder against the church. It's just, it's just who he is. He's so angry. He is threatening them. If you're going to be a Christian, we will find you, and we will get rid of you. That's who he is. He says in 26, Acts chapter 26, verse 9 through 11, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He's looking back on that time when he would kill Christians. It says in verse 10, if I can get to it, there we go. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priest, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. So notice how they did it. We drag off people, we put them in prison, and then we bring them up into the council, and we apparently have a vote. Are they Christians or not? Should we kill them or not? He says, I, I cast my vote against them. So it was a very legal way to kill Christians. It wasn't like he was going into houses with swords and, and stabbing Christians. They were, they were legally killing the Christians. Put them in prison, have the vote, have them put to death by stoning or whatever else. But look at what he says in verse 11 as he describes himself. He says, I was furiously enraged at them. That was his life. Furiously enraged at the Christians. I wanted to get rid of them. It made him so angry. In life, And then the last passage I've got on this, 1 Timothy 1.13, he says, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. We would call that today a religious terrorist, wouldn't we? Somebody who believes so much in their religion that they think they should kill people who believe a certain way. That's who Saul was. And so it makes us ask the question, like, what in the world? How did he get from from that guy to the picture on the screen. How in the world did he go from, I'm killing them all if I can, to my entire life is Jesus Christ? Something drastic had to happen. We'll get to see that next week. But here's what he, what he said looking back at it, as he looked back at that time of who he used to be. He said, whatever things were gained to me, all the education... All the path to being on the Jewish council one day, 
Everybody in Judaism thinking of him as a great leader and a great teacher. Somebody who's going to be one of the next great leaders of the Jewish people. All that stuff that meant so much to me at one time. Keeping, keeping Judaism free from Christianity and all, all that that meant so much to me. He said, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, he says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. He made a conscious decision after he meets the Lord. I'm willing to give all that up. And it just reminds me, we always leave something behind when we follow Jesus Christ. Let's never look back at that path and say, oh, I could have, I could have done that. I, sh- I should have done that. Someone else gets to do that. We're choosing something better. <laughs> when we choose Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying that. He says, all that stuff that I thought was such a big deal, that was just rubbish, just garbage, compared to what I'm having and going to have in Jesus Christ. What a transformation. What do we learn just from a basic look at what he used to be before he's changed by Jesus Christ? I've got two quick things tonight. And the first one is from a passage that Paul says about his former life, and David read part of it for us a minute ago. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. What a great phrase. The grace of God, more than abundant. With the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Notice this. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Your translation might say, among whom I am chief of all. Paul says, I was the chief of sinners. I was the foremost of sinners. He looked back and said, I was killing Christians. I was destroying families. I've always thought that forever after that, when Paul becomes a Christian, no doubt he went into churches all over the Roman Empire, and someone thought, that's the guy who had my dad killed, or my mom killed, or my cousin killed, or my friend killed. Like, there were, there were all sorts of scars left from this violent aggression that, that Saul had toward Christianity. But look what he says in verse 16. For this reason, since I was the worst of everybody, for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. In other words, if God used me as the worst of sinners to show people that if He can save me, He can save anybody. I'm an example of how God can save anybody. And that's what I put there for the outline. Anyone can find a new beginning in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says there in 1 Timothy chapter 1. That God chose Saul in part because he sure was one of the worst of the worst killing Christians, trying to destroy the church, hating Jesus Christ and all of His followers. And if He can turn Him around, then He can turn any of us around. I hope none of us ever look at ourselves and say, I'm just not good enough to become a Christian. But I've been in ministry long enough now to realize that that really is an issue with some people. 
that some people really do look at themselves and say, I've sinned so much, I've messed up so much, people know it, God knows it, I've failed myself, I've failed my family, I'm just not good enough to become a Christian. And we've got to keep trying to get the message across to people that there's no such thing as, quote, good enough to become a Christian. If we can do it on our own, we don't need Jesus Christ. If we can be perfect on our own, we don't need to be saved. We come to Christ because we're sinners. And we come to Christ because we have problems and because we have scars and baggage and all the stuff that we've messed up and because people know about it and all that stuff. We come because He's the one who can do something about it. He's the one, as 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, in Him we become a new creature that no matter where we start from, let us never look at anybody and say, oh, they wouldn't. They wouldn't ever become a Christian. Look at their life. They, they, they would never change. Look at their life. Paul says, God used me to show an example that anybody can be turned around in Jesus Christ. The second thing I've got there that I think we learned from this is that we should never put limits on what we can become in Jesus Christ. Even as Christians, let's, let's say we get to the point, we say, okay, I'm not perfect, not, I know I'm not, I know I'm a sinner, I need Jesus Christ. Let's never look at ourselves and, and look backwards and say, but you know, I've already, I've already messed up so much. Like, I can never become the type of Christian I could have been. I can, I've, I've wasted too many years. I've had too many things happen. Uh, I've, I've, I've messed up so much that I'll never become the strong person of faith that could have been there. It's not the way God looks at it. It's not the way Paul looked at it. Because here is a guy who's killing Christians, and yet he's the one. He's one of the ones who says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Satan is so good at saying, Look at your past. You can't lead. Look at your past. Recent or distant, doesn't matter to him. Look at your past. You're, you're not somebody who needs to step forward and serve. He's so good at trying to get us looking backwards and so good at trying to get us to just stay in our self-pity so that we never move forward in Christ. Let's not fall for that. Let's not fall for that. God sees what we can be. God can look at the life of Saul and say, this is someone, as we'll see next week, says, this is a chosen person of mine. Someone who's going to change the world with the help of God. Uh, he didn't put limits on himself because he didn't put limits on God. We don't need to put limits on God either. If God is for us, who can be against us? Saul is an amazing example of how God can turn any life around if we will just make the decision. God, I want to be with you. I want to live for you. God will give the strength. He'll, he'll help the turnaround happen. I've just got to make the decision. So seeing where he came from, I hope reminds us that with God's help, there's always a brighter future in Christ. Don't let your past keep you from living the way God wants you to live. And tonight, that's where we'll end. Tonight, if you're ready to maybe take a step of faith for God, we're about to sing a song of encouragement. If you'd like to come forward during the song and ask for prayers, we'd love to pray for you. Maybe this is a night that you've just been thinking between you and God, you know, I need to take a step of of stronger faith. I need to live for God more. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to ask God to work in your life. We'd love to ask God to forgive you of whatever sins are separating you from the Lord. We'd love to help you in any way we can get back on the right path. Maybe you've never been baptized into Christ. 
Let your sins be washed away tonight. Become the new creature. Don't wait till you get your life perfect and say, okay, now I can become a Christian. Come to Christ and He'll wash those sins away and He'll help you start living the life the way you should. Um, Saul is a great example of that turnaround. Maybe you're the next example. If you're ready to be baptized into Christ tonight, we'd love to see you do that. If we can help you in any way, please come to the front now while we stand and while we sing.